Welcome in everybody to the Deep Dive Bible Study. My name is Tim and this is my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Tim Live. A subscribe, a like, the notification bell getting clicked would be highly appreciated. Even more appreciated is the button right here. It's called the share button. So if you want to help, help me out, get the word out about this content. We were very dour last night about the deep end. But today, I'm driven. I'm not dour, I'm driven. I'm driven because I know the answer to last night's problems that we addressed. And it's a problem that has been around since the Garden of Eden. We've got to talk about it once again. It seems like I'm repeating myself a little bit here in this season of the Deep Dive, but there is a flow to the text. There's a thematic flow to biblical books. And we're going to talk about one of the most important things for every nation, every community, every neighborhood, every region, every home and every marriage and nothing against the ladies here, but I'm going to be talking about the necessity of strong men. The reason why is because when we don't have strong men, we do not have strong homes, strong marriages, strong communities, strong regions, strong nations, and a strong world. We have what we had happen this week in the Christian school in Nashville. And if you're watching this much later in life, uh, this content is coming to you on the heels of a tragic shooting, six people murdered in cold blood by a transgender person in Nashville, Tennessee. So the deep end last night dealing with that, the deep dive tonight dealing with the value of strong men. So it is part 20 of the deep dive Bible study. Again, glad you're here. Let's get into it. Kings of Compromise. So we're picking up the story on Ahab. Ahab is the anti-man. <laughs> he is everything that is wrong with a man. Last time we were together in the deep dive, we were talking about Ahab as well, because his story really dominates the end of Kings, and it, his story really dominates the tragic decline and, and rapid decline of the kingdom to the north in Israel, the 10 tribes that followed Jeroboam a couple of decades earlier. And so Ahab is kind of the archetype of these men, these weak-willed, spineless men who will not fight for the people who only serve themselves, who seek their own pleasure and comfort, who follow their wives' leads and do not stand for God. And last time we talked about the fact that God had to actually in instigate a war so that he would learn to fight the Lord's battles. And sometimes that's what God does with us, both men and women. But today is tr uh, really targeted toward the men because we see in Ahab a man who fails on every side. He fails in his profession. He fails in what God has given him, his possessions, and he fails in his uh, leadership, uh, his priority, if you will, as a man in marriage. He is, he is by all accounts, a passive man. But you can't just say a passive man is no problem because you know, he'll just let things happen around him. No, the, the rule given to Adam was rule and subdue and cultivate and, and rule the earth, have dominion, take authority, be active in your life. Passivity, one of the greatest crimes men can commit and are still committing today in countless numbers. And it's why we have tragedies left, right, and center in our school systems, in our politics, in our homes, it's a tragedy for a man to stand idly by when the culture is looking for, begging for, dare I say, demanding an active man who is not just active, but active in the power and in the word of God. So we're going to go through the text and we're going to talk about this, uh, this very passive man. And if you're, a if you're a lady tonight, you might say, oh, a message about men. What do I have to do with this? Here's what you have to do with this. Raise your sons to be like this. Um, if you're a single woman, look for a man who will not be like Ahab. I should backtrack. If you're a mom, don't raise your sons to be like Ahab. So <laughs> we'll give you the antithesis of, antith antithesis of Ahab later. But we're going to look at it. Let's go through the text. Okay, so the danger of weak men. That is the title of today's message, 1 Kings chapter 21. If you have your Bibles, that's great. If you don't, don't worry about it because guess what I do? I have the Bible right here on the digital device that you are watching this through. 1 Kings 21 verse 1, it says this. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace beside the palace of Ahab, king of, of Samaria. So let's get this straight. There's a guy named Naboth. He has a vineyard in Jezreel. 
and it just so happens to be abutted to the palace of King Ahab, king of Samaria, king of the northern kingdoms, okay, king of the northern tribes. So it says this, after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it if it seems good to you. Uh, I will give you its value in money. Oh, I'm sorry. He gives him a choice here. I'll give you a better vineyard, or if it seems good to you, I'll just pay you with money for it. Now look at verse three. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you this inherit the inheritance of my father's very key line there. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him, for he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father's. Again, very important line there. And he lay down on his bed and turned his face away and would eat no food. This is the epitome of a pity party for a passive man. Have I put enough P words into that sentence? The epitome, I guess that's not a P word, but the epitome of a pity party of a passive man. The world cannot survive passive men. The world cannot thrive in passive men led or dominated cultures. So we're in the narrative again, back to Ahab, again about Ahab. And it's been about Ahab since chapter 16. And you say, why so much ink dedicated to this wicked king? Well, because God wants us clear on something. This is what bad men do to culture. This is what bad male leadership does to culture. And yet, as we're going to find out at the end of this chapter, we're going to find out that God still wants to save bad men. And we're going to find out why that's good at the end of this content. But nonetheless, God wants to speak to him. Now, a couple of things. God wants to change him. God wants to do something through Ahab, even if he's evil. A couple of passages, points to note on the text. First off, he wants Naboth's vineyard for a vegetable garden. That's verse two. Do you know why that's important? And I almost missed this. All the commentators that I studied kept pointing this out. Vegetable garden, vegetable garden. Why? Why does that matter? Okay, because the only other time in the Old Testament where vegetable garden is referenced at all is in Deuteronomy chapter 11. And I want to go there because I want to show you something in this powerful uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 11. When God is describing the promised land to his people Israel before they go into the promised land, he makes a correlation. He makes a comparison. And he looks back to Egypt and he calls it, look at this, in Deuteronomy 11. Let's begin with verse 10. For the land that you're entering to take possession of it is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come where you sowed your seed and irrigated it. Look at this like a garden of vegetables. Now, the same Hebrew word there is the word for uh, vegetable garden in 1 Kings 21, verse 2. So just so you know that God is saying Egypt is like a vegetable garden. Then he says, but the land that the Lord that you're going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys. By the way, that's also a reference to last chapter in 1 Kings 20 which drinks water by the rain from heaven. And look at verse 12, a land that the Lord your God cares for. And that phrase, the, a land that the Lord your God cares for, is all over the New Testament. There's a couple of other references here that are in my Bible study, but you can look them up for yourself. All over the place, God says, this is a land that I care for. It's not like a vegetable garden where it's all up to you. And Egypt is a symbol for who we are before Christ saves us. And who we are, according to this passage now I want you to see, we are people that need to fend for ourselves. Uh, our life is in our own hands. We need to make sure that we do everything to make sure who we are. It, it, that is not how God wants any of us to live. That leads to stress. It leads to sin. It leads to uh, consternation, depression, idolatry. What, we, what God wants us to enter into is into a life in which he cares for us. As 1 Peter chapter 5 says, cast all your anxieties upon him for he cares for you. That's the life God wants for you, right? So Egypt is a picture. Egypt is a picture of a land where you own it and you have to till it and you have to work it and God's not involved. But the promised land is a land that God wants to give you to, prom to prosper you. You still have to plant, you still have to sow, but God's with you. He's going to care for the land because he loves you. That's his land. And he's giving it to you to prosper in. Now, now here's the picture though that you need to see in Ahab. Let's go back to the text. He said, give me your vineyard to Naboth, verse two, that I may have it for a vegetable garden. So let me just show you what is happening here. The text is speaking about Ahab's heart. And Ahab wants to make the land of Egypt, uh, Israel, like the land of Egypt. He wants to make God's gift to him, to his people, like the land that God saved him from. As did Solomon way back in chapter 11 of 1 Kings, who married who? Pharaoh's daughter and other foreign national wives and also 
went back to Egypt for horses and chariots on a regular basis to increase his military you know, uh, structure and protect himself. This is a picture of a bad man, a man who does not want God to care for the people or for himself, but wants to be in charge in his own strength, in his own might. Be not mistaken when I say that weak men are the problem. Weak men are men who can sometimes appear or act strong on the outside or on the visible because they don't have internal strength in here through the Holy Spirit. So there's got a, there is a worldly vision of a strong man. That's not what we're talking about here. Because that strong man, the world says is a strong man, is actually a weak man. And we'll talk about why for many reasons. And we have before. But a strong man in God is a man who understands that this is God's. He will care for us. I'm here to tend. I'm here to rule and subdue as God has given me authority, knowing ultimately that this is God's land. Now, let me show you in the passage why, how this is illustrated through Naboth's phrase. Because even though Naboth is not the main character in the story, he is a Christ figure. And he is a picture of two things. He's a picture of the 7,000 people that God has reserved for himself that he talked about with uh, Elijah at Mount Horeb in chapter 19. The 7,000 faithful Israelites that Elijah couldn't believe existed. And he's also going to be a picture of Christ, and we'll see that in just a moment. But here's what Naboth says. Let's look at it again. The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And that is the exact sentence that uh, Ahab is depressed about. Why would Ahab be depressed about Naboth saying that, that phrase? Because Ahab might have just a small familiarity with the word of God. And he knows that the word of God makes clear that the land was to remain in the families of Israel in perpetuity. And if they ever did sell it at the year of Jubilee, every 50th year, they were to return the land to the original, you know, descent, the, the original owner's descendants. So sometimes, yeah, your, your crops failed or you had a disaster and you had to sell yourself out to slavery. And so you would give your land to somebody to sell yourself out to slavery and you would serve only for seven years according to Israel's statutes and, and God's law. Uh, and then you would work the land and then you would get food from the land, but it was really in the hands of the other person until the year of Jubilee, you would get it back. Why did God want the land to be in the possession of the original owner? To keep Israel from a poverty-stricken nation, to keep justice in the land, and to teach people a valuable lesson that is going to portend to everything in this text. And the valuable lesson is this, God owns it all. It is not our land, it is God's land. Let me give you a couple of passages of scripture. Genesis chapter 17, verse eight. God says to Abraham, I will give you and to your offspring uh, after you the land of your sojournings. So. God can give it because it is God's. Abraham gets it from God because God is the original owner of it. By the way, the original owner of America is God. <laughs> the original owner of Europe is God. The original owner of Africa is God. I mean, enough of this, oh, it belongs to the Native Americans. Oh, it belongs to the white people. Oh, it belongs to black people. No, it all belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Okay? In the land of Israel, though, we have a picture of heaven because I think what heaven is going to be is you're going to have your allotted land given to you by your father in heaven, and you're going to be satisfied and well-watered and well-prospered in the heavenly kingdom that is to come. But this is a picture for us. In Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23, he says, the land shall not be sowed in perpetuity for the land is mine. You are strangers and sojourners with me. And in Numbers 36, verse 7, the inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another, for every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of their tribe, of the tribes of his fathers. Okay, a couple of things. The reason why that this was a law in Israel was, number one, a very socially um, aware reason that no family would be stricken with generational poverty. You would always have capacity every 50 years to come back to your land and produce income for your family. Secondly, a spiritual priority. The land is not mine. The land is God's. So all that I have, my income, my increase, it's all God's. That's why we bring the tithes. That's why we give freely. That's why we're generous because we know the Lord will bless us back because it's his land, not ours. Uh, and then thirdly, uh, it was to point to the fact that you are in, on this planet, according to verse uh, 8 of Genesis chapter 17. You're sojourning. You're sojourning. In verse 23 of Leviticus 25, right there, you can see it there. You are strangers and sojourners. What does God say? With me. We're doing this together. The land is not yours. You are a stranger in it. You are sojourning. This is temporary. So, so on those three levels, economic justice, 
a spiritual priority that God is only our owner of all things. And then thirdly, that we are here temporarily. And so we have got to manage what God gives us in that light are the spiritual reasons behind the, 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 the spiritual values behind God saying, we're not selling land and you're not to be selling land. By the way, the later prophets, Isaiah and Micah, both condemn those who add to their fields and add to their houses until they're all alone in the land. Micah chapter two, woe to those who divide wickedness, devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is the power in their land, in their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. God absolutely cares about economic justice. Let it never be said that I do not believe that. It is 100% part of God's plan. Economic justice, how we, how we administrate economic justice, we can argue about, okay? Giving people money is not biblical. Giving people money who don't work is not biblical. And I can show you plenty of verses from Genesis right through the rest of the texts of the Bible why that's not biblical. Um, so anyway, back to the story. Naboth says no because Naboth knows the law. Ahab is whining on his bed because he knows he might know the law, but ultimately he knows that the law is keeping him from increasing and turning Israel into the land of Egypt. And what happens then? This is why Ahab is the archetype, the epitome of the pity party man who is powerless in his house. Let's look at verse five. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? Oh, poor widow Ahab, why are you so upset? And he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else if it pleases you, I'll give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. What a little baby this guy is. And Jezebel, his wife said to him, do you not govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. This is so ironic. This is a woman who knows that she has married a passive man, a passive man with no spine because she's like, you're the king. That should be yours, but I'll go get it for you. Like, <laughs> how many men are like that though? They don't act. They don't, they don't work. They don't do what they're supposed to do with what God has given them. They're obsessed about other people's stuff. And they let that stuff in other people's hands cause them little pity parties. It's called coveting, friend. We're going to talk about coveting big time in this text in just a moment. But what, what, what sours Ahab's spirit is a spirit of coveting. He's not happy with what God has given him. He wants what God has given others. And he's got a wife who's complicit in his coveting because he is not a good, strong man. And he is driven by possessions and he's driven by acquiring and he's driven by chasing the good life. And his wife, who is a pagan and is into all those things from Sidon, is more than willing to enable that behavior in his life. So let's look at verse eight. So this is what Jezebel does. So she wrote letters, first of all, in Ahab's name. Okay, so she plagiarizes her husband's name, uses his ink, his seal. Um, it says there, and sealed, him with, sealed them with his seal. And she sent letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. Now look at who she's writing to. Just don't, don't miss. Every verse is important. She's writing to the elders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she said this in the letters, proclaim a fast. So this is the you know, image of religious devotion and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two, this is not an ironic number, two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, you have what? What's the charge you're going to bring? Cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. Jezebel's plan is pure evil. She forges Ahab's signature. She takes dominance over Ahab. She covertly takes authority over the elders and the leaders of the city, and she brings everyone in on this evil scheme. She conspires. Don't miss that word. She conspires to bring evil upon the innocent, righteous Naboth. Let's continue with the text because it is going to get worse. Verse 10. And the men of the city... <clears throat> And the men of the city, the elders and the leaders, again, we, we're not to miss this. When, when Hebrew repeats itself, it's this, pay attention here. So the elders and the leaders who lived in the city at, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, as it, as it was written in the letters that she had sent them. They proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth, what's the charge? Cursed God. And the king, my friends, if you're not picking up on something yet, 
I'll give it to you, but you probably should be picking up on something right now, a hint at a larger story that comes later in the Bible. So they took him outside of the city and they stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. Does that story of a man being brought charges against an innocent, righteous man being brought charges against him by two men in the presence of the people leading to his death sound familiar? That's the story of Christ. That's exactly what happens at the end of all four gospels. The chief priests cannot get the right charges brought against Jesus. They, they invent charges. They get him uh, condemned guilty uh, on the falsified charges. They conspire together and he is condemned where? In front of the people. And he is put to death at the hands of this conspiracy. All of this is to point ultimately to Christ. We are um, therefore, and listen to this closely, not alarmed and not taken aback when the same exact thing will happen to the followers of Jesus. People will attack you. They will say all manner of evil against you. Let me see if I can get there. Uh, yes, 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 yes. Oh, the, the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the, um, the mourners. Blessed are those who are meek, those who are hungry, right? Let's take a look at one of the last um, Beatitudes in that list, Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are you when others, what? Revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Next word, falsely. Oh my goodness, did you ever see falsely there? I gotta be honest with you, I've preached this text and I've never even noticed that falsely was there, but it's there. They're gonna bring false charges against you. People are going to say things that are not true about you if you're following Christ. And, and then he says this on my account, rejoice and be glad for your reward in, is great in heaven. Naboth lost his life, but he gained glory in heaven. And our forefathers in the faith have lost their lives on false charges, on trumped up charges, on um, accusations that were not true. And they gained the ultimate possession of eternal life in heaven. This is not to be unexpected. So when we talk about the shooting of six Christians in a Christian school by a trans activist who now the news has come out was angry because their parents, it's a girl who identified as a boy, right? Yeah. Her parents didn't accept her masculinity. And there's, you know, more studies coming out, more news coming about out about the manifesto that his, her, sorry, her anger against the community and even maybe the state of Tennessee was the impetus behind the vicious vile attack. And what is our media doing? They are complicit in carrying the narrative forward on behalf of the transgenders who are now being elevated as the pure social righteous people. And the Christians are being vilified as the evil unrighteous bigoted people and maybe, maybe possibly deserve what they get. So in this instance in which we live Christians, we go back to what Jesus experienced himself, what Jesus told us we would experience as well, what Naboth experienced here under Ahab, and we do not lose heart. And we do not hate those who falsely accuse us, and we do not attack them with violence. We can criticize the accusation. We can call out truth. We can call out lies. You don't call out truth. We can call out lies, and you can declare the truth. You can identify the weak-willed leader of our nation 100% with, with authority, righteous indignation, but we pray for them. We pray for our leaders. They need it. We pray for those who hate us. They need Jesus. And as we're going to see at the end of this chapter, we're going to hope and pray for their salvation. Because astonishingly, the person in this text that you would least expect to see and experience God's mercy actually gets it. I'll save that for the end. Let's continue on in the text. Verse 15. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. A couple things about that. That is actually the law of ancient times where if someone died and you were the last to talk to him about it, you could actually take possession of the land. And so Ahab is following the dictates of the foreign nations around him. 
at the behest of his wicked wife, Jezebel. So he does. Uh, she says, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. Um, another reference to Jesus. He is alive. He is not dead. But anyway, verse 16, uh, just a hint at Jesus. Anyway, verse 16. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreite, to take possession of it. So here we are. It looks like evil has won. It looks like evil has won. Have you been there? Are you there? I'm there. It looks like evil has won. It looks like evil's winning all the time, every day. This is why, by the way, you should watch the deep end on Tuesday and watch the deep dive on Wednesday <laughs> because they do work together, not by my own designs, but by, I believe, the sovereign direction of God. Um, we're going to go through seasons many times where we feel like evil is winning. Well, I bet you Naboth's wife felt evil's winning. They conspired against my husband. They killed him and they took his vineyard and they're getting away with it. No, they're not. Just because it looks that way doesn't mean it is that way. God keeps accurate records. God keeps accurate accounts. And he says to his followers, I am coming and my recompense was with me. Jesus came as a baby, humble, meek and mild the first time. He's not coming that way the next time. Mm -mm. He's not. And the prophets talk about this. Woe to them that hasten the day of the Lord. Woe to them that look forward to it. It's not a day of, of joy and um, blessing is a day of judgment. It's a day of God treading out the grapes of wrath. It is a, it's a day in which God takes authority over every wickedness of man and repays all evil for all evil. And if you are not covered in the blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are a sitting duck waiting for that judgment to come. Anyway, we've got to continue or we'll never get through this text. <laughs> Verse 17, the word of the Lord came to Elisha the Tishbite. Now there you go. Just when you think evil is winning, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah the Tishbite. Remember Elijah? Last time we talked about him, he was whining and moaning himself. But God is still going to use his prophet because God does not give up on his prophets. He says, arise, God says to uh, Elijah, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs licked up, lick up um, your own blood. So in the midst of the darkness, when all looks lost, Elijah is sent by the word of the Lord. Here's a little practical pro-Christian tip. When you are at your lowest, open the Bible. When you feel like darkness is winning, open the Bible. Don't go on social media for heaven's sakes. Don't go to the news organizations. Do not go to YouTube even, except if it's for the deep dive. And get your Bible open. Let God's word speak to you because in the midst of the darkness, his word is still authority, authoritative. And it is the final authority in all matters of life. And death. Okay, so let's continue with verse 20. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself. These are very important accusations and right, rightful accusations, rightful condemnations, actually, or assessments, if you will, of Ahab's character. You have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab. Look what he's going to lose. Every male, bond and free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, These, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone of his, of, of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. Okay, these are the most um, devastating condemnations in all the scripture. Getting eaten by dogs, who the Israelites considered unclean and scavengers, getting eaten by birds, which again were unclean according to Israel, was God, God's worst judgment. Your body doesn't just decompose on the ground. It doesn't get buried. It's not in the tomb. You are going to be open air fodder for unclean animals. That is what God thinks of you. So what does he lose, though? Can we just go back for a second to verse 21? Every male is going to be gone. Every male in your house. Why is that important? Because of what I'm about to share with you. Weak men destroy sons and strong men create sons. 
Weak men destroy sons. Strong men create sons. Are you a weak man or are you a strong man? Are you a passive man, letting your wife do everything and sitting by idly and not activating and not living in faith, not following the Lord, not seeking him, not obeying him, coveting everything around you, just like Ahab does here with the stupid field, not the stupid, but you know, this field and that Naboth. Are you measuring your life against other dudes, other people? Are you chasing the pleasures of this earth? You're a weak man. You're going to destroy your sons. And here's where transgenderism comes from. Fatherlessness. Dads who excel in every other venture of life for their own pleasures and gratifications, but do not excel in teaching their men how to be boys, teaching their boys how to be men, teaching their sons how to be strong in Christ. I guarantee it at the heart of every transgender son is a son who does not have a strong, godly father who puts God first in the home or a broken home, or a father who gave up on the marriage or gave up on being a father. And I think that we're just getting the results of what we've perpetuated in this culture for decades, no fault divorce, the breakdown of the family, the chasing after you know, sex without consequences. And, and many in many respects, the church has been complicit in this movement, has not spoken out about these values, has not backed up traditional uh, sexual roles in families, gender roles in families, and has not elevated godly sex, but has allowed for their own lives to reflect the value system of this age instead of standing in opposition to it and standing as a image of what Christ has modeled for us. That, that, that is where we are. That, that is how we got here. And by the way, notice God's anger. Dog's going to lick you up. Dog's going to eat you. Some people think that there's this candy-coated version of Christianity where God only loves and never judges. I beg to differ. That's why when Christians speak out about issues in the culture, they get all offended. But no, God is angry at wickedness. I'm going to give you a couple of verses to show you what I'm talking about. Uh, Psalm 77 verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. He feels indignation. He feels anger every day. Let me put this up in the King New King James Version. God is a just judge. And God is angry with the wicked every day. This Bible verse, we don't put on coffee cups. We don't put on t-shirts. <laughs> we don't put in little frames. Is just as true as I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It is just as valid as for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Psalm 7 verse 11 is just as much the word of God and just as true as all those other favorite verses of ours. God is angry with the wicked. If you see wickedness, good news, God is more angry than you. And his anger is perfect. That's why you leave vengeance in his hand, right? Romans chapter 13. You leave vengeance, or is it 14? Vengeance is in the hand of God, not you, because he will enact perfect vengeance when he comes again. Okay, let's continue with the text. Verse 25. The summation of Ahab's life, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. Verse 27. <laughs> and this is, this, is, this is where the story turns in a way that I don't like. I'm going to fully confess. I don't like how this chapter ends because I would not treat Ahab like this. I would not let this happen. But God does. Here's what it says. Verse 27, when Ahab heard these words, those words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. Now he's sorrowing, but he's not sorrowing out of covetousness for Naboth's vineyard. He's sorrowing over his own sin and the future of his progeny, his family, his, his genealogy. And now for the biggest troubling verse in all of first and second kings i kid you not i've read both books several times this one has me floored are you ready watch this verse 28 and the word of the lord came to elijah the tishbite saying have you seen how ahab has humbled himself before me because he has humbled himself before me i will not bring the disaster in his days but in his son's days i will bring the disaster upon his house are you kidding me you you're going to relent lord you're not going to judge this man that thoroughly deserves it. But the moment that I'm ready to say that about Ahab, I condemn myself because I don't deserve his mercy. I have done evil. You have done evil. The, the moment that we think 
How dare God forgive this man is the moment that somebody could say that about us. I haven't sinned as bad as Ahab. I can, I can pretty much guarantee I haven't sinned as bad as Ahab. But somebody hasn't sinned as bad as me. There's only one who has not sinned. That's Christ. All sin is worthy of death. All sin is worthy of judgment. And anyone who doesn't face that judgment has received the Lord's mercy. And it is mercy because it is undeserved. It is mercy because it's not what we should get. And in spite of all the things that Ahab has done so far, following his wife, passively being a weak-willed, spineless man, losing his sons, um, attacking and vilifying Elijah, stealing Naboth's vineyard, allowing his wife to conspire to kill the man. God says he humbled himself. And I'm going to relent from bringing disaster in his days. By the way, why does God say I'm going to bring it in his son's days? Well, that's because God knows that eventually Ahab's sons are going to be just as bad. That's not because he's saying, I'm, I'm going to make Ahab's sons pay for this. No, he's already lost his sons. So here's the deal, fathers. You can be forgiven for what you've done, but you might have to do a lot of work to undo the damage that you've done in your children, if that's your story. And, and it's not to condemn you, it's to challenge you. That forgiveness in Christ is not just, okay, slate's clean, now you don't have to change anything. No, you have to, you have to make amends. You have to do some things to clean up the mess like... Um, like um, Zacchaeus does. Lord, if I've defrauded anybody, I give him four times as much and I give half of my money to the poor because he knew he had defrauded. So he makes amends. And Jesus says salvation has come to this house this day. So yes, we get forgiveness, but then we have to work to make things right as Christians. That is the gospel's truth. Our working to make things right don't save us, but they are the fruit of us being saved. So uh, that's the text. And let's top into the truth to, con to conclude this talk. <laughs> So we need to talk about Ahab's sin, and that is the sin of coveting. Let's deal with that first. Um, give me your vineyard, verse 2, that I may have it for a vegetable garden. I co I'm coveting what you have. We do well re to remember something here. As bad as Ahab is, coveting the vineyard of Naboth. Just back up a few books of the Bible, two books of the Bible. Back up to 1 Samuel and read about a king named David. No, 2 Samuel, right? Sorry. <laughs> so back up one book of the Bible. To a king named David, who didn't covet a field, but covet a woman. And he, like Jezebel, what? Conspires and murders and tries to cover things up. Amazing when you think about it, right? Because we, we herald David as this mighty man of God, but Ahab... Didn't do that about a woman. He did that about a field. And Ahab kind of did it passively through his wife. David did it directly through his own actions as the king of the army, as a, as a leader of the army. It's just an important point about coveting is both in Ahab's life and in David's life, coveting leads to other sins. And this is why you've got to deal with it. Philip Graham Ryken says that coveting gives way to bitterness. Bitterness gives way to deception. Deception gives way to murder. Thus, what starts out as sour grapes sometimes ends up in homicide. If I cannot get what I want, I will kill for it. That's what the Nashville killer did. I cannot get the affirmation I want from my parents and, and, and the community. So I will kill for it. That's, that, that, that's our country's problem. Killing people to get stuff. Obsessed with the good life. So we will kill people, put them to death either verbally or emotionally or literally to get what we want. Coveting is the root of every other horizontal sin and even some vertical sins. There's 10 commandments. The 10th commandment is thou shalt not covet. That's Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Don't covet your neighbor's house, field, donkey, wife, male servant, man servant. The word coveting in Hebrew is lakmod. It means to desire to the point of seeking to take. It doesn't mean you desire. Desiring things is fine, but desiring to the point of seeking to take something from someone else, that's coveting. Trying to have someone else's life, trying to get someone else, chasing the Joneses, keep keeping up with the Joneses, finding someone else's life to be, you know, maybe they don't deserve, I deserve what they have. That's just coveting. And, and we can, we can whitewash it without whatever terms we want. Well, you know, I'm just driven. Well, I'm just ambitious. Well, you know, I just think that I, I, I have come to me. That's just coveting. By the way, you can be rich and covet. You could be dirt poor and covet. You can be a conservative, fiscally conservative person and covet. You can be a social liberal and covet. 
okay? <laughs> coveting is the sin on the, the entire spectrum. Um, Dennis Prager makes this point about coveting, and I want to bring it up. He says coveting is one of only, one of, he says it one, but I, I think it's two. One of only, and I'm going to say it's two, one of only two sins in the Ten Commandments that you do with your mind, not your hands. You, you steal with your hands, you commit adultery with your hands, you uh, lie with your mouth, but you think your brain does coveting. Your heart or your brain, whatever you want, they're kind of interchangeable in Scripture. The other thought sin in the Ten Commandments is the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. You can't break that law with your hands. You break that law with your mind. God is either first here or he's not. And yes, how you live betrays the fact that he's not first here, right? So both of these commandments bracket the first commandment, the last commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Exodus chapter uh, 20, verse 3. Uh, thou shalt not covet all these things in your neighbor's house. They're the brackets of the Ten Commandments and the Eight Commandments in the middle how we live them out is determined by our approach to the outward commandments, the, ex, the, the bracketed uh, external commandments. Isn't that amazing? It's kind of interesting how the scripture comes together. And it, so coveting is the root of many other sins. Uh, it will destroy your life. And ultimately, it is the expression that you believe that God is not good. That's why the land was God's. That's why it was on loan to Israel. That's why everything is God's. What Naboth illustrates and Ahab rejected was, this property is not mine to give. It's not mine to sell. It belongs to my inheritance, belongs to my ancestors, and ultimately belongs to God. He's the one that gives us what we have. And the only way to really break the power of coveting is number one, to learn from the experiences of Ahab and David and others who sinned in coveting and destroyed their lives and their futures. But number two is to understand that everything is already in God's hands. The sinning of the sin of coveting does not pay. Job 20 verse four says, do you not know from of old since man was placed on the earth that exulting of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless for a moment. Coveting does not lead to long-term gain. It's short-term promise. It's long-term pain. That's what coveting does. The sin of coveting, Paul says in second, in Romans chapter seven was the sin that led him to realize that he had broken the law. Remember that uh, Paul is a self-righteous Pharisee with a, an astute adherence to the law. He talks about this in Romans chapter 7. He talks about it in uh, Philippians chapter 3. And yet, he says, the one that got me was coveting because that one was not something that was outward. It was inward. It's a, it's a, it's a thought sin. It's a, it's a heart. It's an inward sin. So he says in Romans chapter 7, what shall we say? The law is sin. No means if I had... If it had not been for the law, I would not know what sin was, for I would not know what, is, what it was to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. So he's, he's leading you through this discourse of his own life. And this is how I came to realize that I'm a wretched man. He gets to the end of that chapter. He says, what a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this body of death? He's like, I can't stop coveting in my own power. I can't stop coveting and desiring in my own power. Yes, on the outside, I can act a certain way that looks like I'm not interested in stealing or interested in adultery or interested in lying. But on the inside, I know I want to make plans to feed the beast in here. And so that issue is also sin and the law said that's sin coveting and it broke me and that's what brought me to knowing that i needed jesus christ so the hope for those who struggle with coveting is this that ultimately your coveting is just a reminder that you need a savior if you're not crushed by the weight of your coveting you'll never turn to christ but thank god that yes our hearts show us the evil inside of us so that we realize that we need a savior who is outside of us to come in and change us from the inside out that is the hope for those who covet and the hope for men who covet. Because I think that coveting is a particular sin for men. Correct me if I'm wrong here, ladies in the chat. I feel fine doing if you do that. But to me, you think about chasing the good life. Coveting seems to be, I know women struggle with it in different ways. But when it comes to possessions, uh, notoriety, importance, it seems to trend toward the male sex. I don't know. Maybe I'm just, this is an opinion. You have every right to disagree with my opinion. Anyway, back to the truths that we want to tap into. And this is the summing up the teaching. Weak men destroy everything. Weak men destroy everything. This is how God talks about Ahab. There was none like him who sold himself out to do evil inside the, the Lord. He followed his wife's lead. He acted abominably. He went after idols. So a couple points about weak, weak, weak men that we want to talk about. Weak men sell out. They don't stand on convictions. They stand on what is pragmatic, what is expedient, what is helpful to their lives getting better. Weak men do not lead. They follow. They do not lead their wives to church. They follow them to church begrudgingly. 
They do not lead their children. They follow their children's feelings. They do not correct. They do not discipline. They, they, they don't have those convictions to lead. Uh, thirdly, men, weak men bow to the idols of this age. They're consumed with video games. They're consumed with uh, pleasure, pornography. They're consumed with alcohol and partying. And they want, the, you know, they want to have a lot of fun. Well, they're just bowing to the out of the age. They're a weak man. And number four, weak men are self-centered, stuff-oriented, and not content. They aren't content with what God gives them. By the way, that's where every abuse of power comes from. When a man is not content with what he has, a.k.a. Ahab and David, he will abuse his power to gain what he thinks belongs to him, which really belongs to others. So Ahab is a weak man, and he loses his sons. He, he's a, a whining man. He's a petulant man. He's a follower. His weakness leads to Jezebel's dominance and evil. His weakness destroys his family. His weakness destroys his country. His weakness kills people. And that is what the country we live in is experiencing right now. Weak men. That's what our culture is experiencing right now. That's what our culture wants in some respects. They want weak men. Well, really, they don't want it. The devil wants it and has tricked them to want it too. I, I, I fully believe more now than ever before, we need fathers. We need strong men. My wife shared a story with me uh, this week. Uh, she's from Africa. So in South Africa, there's a uh, game park. It's called Kruger's, Kruger's National Park. Kruger National Park? Somewhere around Johannesburg, South Africa. Many years ago, there was an overpopulation of elephants in the park. And if the elephants dominate the population, other species cannot live. And so they have to you know, navigate these issues. And so they decided that they were going to transport elephants from that park to another park a few hundred miles away. Well, it's not so easy to, to transport elephants. They rigged up a, um, a harness on a helicopter to transport the elephants. Well, the harness worked for the females and the, and the children elephants. But it did not support the weight of the bull elephants, the fathers. So they decided, well, let's just move the daughters, the sons and daughter elephants, the baby elephants, and the moms, because we can carry them. So they did. They removed, now think about this. They removed the fathers from the herd, and they put the mothers and the children in another park. A couple weeks go by, and they start running across all these dead rhinoceroses. And they were white rhinoceroses, which were an endangered species at that time. And they weren't just dead. They were gorged stomped on and horned and violently attacked. They thought it was poachers. They thought it was men coming in and shooting these, these animals and killing them for, for profit, but they were left there to die. So it wasn't men. So they did some research and they, and they scattered out and they realized that it was the baby elephants. And the baby elephants without dad around became extremely violent and aggressive and marauding. And they became juvenile delinquents because their fathers weren't there. So this was studied extensively and they, and they found out that there are certain hormones that are released at a certain stage at these young elephants' lives that if a fatherly figure is not there to rein them in will lead to an aggressive attack kind of behavior. That, my friends, is the problem with America right now. Why is violence on the rise? Why, is, why are mass shootings on the rise? Why are our prisons overpopulated? 95% of our prisons, 95% of our prison inmates are fatherless. By the way, America is 5% of the world's population. It is half the world's prison population. I'm sorry, not half, 25%. 25% of the world's prison population is in America. And the world has no clue how to fix this problem. They believe affirming single mothers and a, a single hood and hookup culture is good. If it feels good, do, if you, do it. If, if it brings you pleasure, if it makes you happy, well, then it, it's, it's what you deserve. You deserve to be happy. A greater lie has not yet been foisted upon this culture as you deserve to be happy. You don't deserve to be happy. You must be responsible. You must be holy. You must be uh, others-oriented. And you must, most importantly, be disciplined, strong, accountable, reasonable. These lost values of our country are destroying men and children because they don't know how to react when dad's not there to rein them in. The best thing that you can do, fathers, you know what the best thing that you can do right now? 
You can act like men. It's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. Look at this. these two verses going together. Act like men and do everything in love. Be strong and do everything in love. Be watchful and do, you know what I'm saying? Being a strong man is not being a dominant man. It's being a loving man who takes responsibility for what God has given him. (sighs) To the young ladies listening to me on this show, I implore you to please check the man you might be dating or might be interested in dating against against these values. Strong men are not passive. They're watchful. They watch their own lives. They don't have several drinks at a party. They can go to parties, but they can control themselves. They, they, are, they are not show-offs. They don't take unnecessary risks to impress people. Ladies, I know you want aggressive men. This is a scientific fact. Young ladies love aggressive, talented men, but some of those men are so aggressive and talented, they will destroy you. They will take unnecessary risks with you. If he's a risk chaser now, well, what risks do you think the devil's going to offer him when you're married to him? Just, I'm just asking you to be wise in this, in this, in this instance. Uh, strong men lead their family in the faith. Married men lead their family. They lead their family to church. They lead their family in the word. They lead their family in discipline and in the fear of the Lord. Strong men demolish idols through the Holy Spirit. I understand, men. It's hard to beat those idols. You have the power of the Holy Spirit in you. One of the greatest prayers you can pray when you're facing temptation is simply this. Holy Spirit, take control now. Take control of me and demolish this idol in my heart. And lastly, strong men are others-oriented, content, and giving. That's what we need. That's what the world needs. That's what you need. That's what our churches need. That's what our families need. That's what our communities need. And this is what the church must proclaim more now than ever before as we see madness increasing to a level I have never seen before in my lifetime. That's the show, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for being here. Support the channel if you would be so kind with the cash app, Tim Hatch Live or timhatchlive.com support. Thanks again for all of you who support this content. It helps us get the advertising dollars spent well. 10 Questions with Tim is next week. Now, next week is up for grabs. So, like I say, click what? The subscribe button. Click that notification bell. Why? Because the notification bell will tell you right here on your smartphone. Oh, hey, Tim Hatch Live is live. So I don't know what's next week. I do know we will have 10 questions. Get your 10 questions submitted through askatimhatchlive.com. Next week is the first Thursday of the month, but it is also Holy Week. Last thing that you can do to help me with the channel is like, share, and subscribe. I'm so glad that you guys were here. I pray for your sons and your husbands and the single men who might be listening to me that God will give you strength in him to lead, protect, care, and do everything that God gives you to do in love. God bless.